0: Welcome to episode 111 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed and I'm the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. And today we're going to be talking about some of the greatest figures in music and in particular going back to the 70s and 80s.
0: Yes, we're going to be talking about David Bowie with Jeff Marsh, who's been one of the curators behind the new Aladdin Sane exhibition on the South Bank, which is going to be an absolute must-see for all Bowie fans. Jeff has been on this podcast before, but with a very different hat. He talked about his brilliant book, Living with Shakespeare. So you may not have realised that not only does he know everything about Shakespeare, he also knows everything about David Bowie. We're delighted to have him with us. Good morning,
2: Jeff. Uh, good morning. I think um, I, I think that would be a lifetime's uh, work to uh, know anything about David Bowie. I can't claim to do be able to do that, but I hope uh, to give you a few insights into the Aladdin Sane show at the uh, Royal Festival Hall.
0: Well, I can tell you, I can tell you something, Jeff. I've only just learned how to pronounce David Bowie. I've called him Bowie all my life, and I had to go to convince myself I was wrong. I had to get, I had to find a YouTube video which has David Bowie saying his name in about 25 different
2: interviews. (laughs) He did name himself after the Bowie knife, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Is that right? Is that right? A new fact already emerges. Oh,
1: there you go. There you go. Now, we also have with us Dave Robinson, the legendary co-founder of Stiff Records, where I was a video producer in the 1980s, so I was lucky enough to witness Dave Robinson close up at work. Dave, usually known as Robbo, is now on a nationwide one-man tour called We Came, We Saw, We Left, The Horse Speaks. And today we're going to hear from The Horse's Mouth about that tour and about his time creating massive hits for artists ranging from Tracy Ullman and Madness to Bob Marley. Welcome, Robbo.
3: Hi there, Charlotte. Good to... uh... Meet up, uh, Jeffrey and Ed, so yes. Hold on, if we're... we've got
0: Dave Robinson on our podcast, why are we sharing him with Jeff? I mean, Dave is a legend, he deserves <laughs> his own podcast. I'm too young to have really benefited from Stiff, but I remember being shocked, thrilled and excited as a as sort of an eight or nine-year-old, as my brother walked around with a t-shirt which said, if it ain't Stiff, it ain't worth a fuck.
1: I've I still got mine that. I
3: still got mine The police uh, sued me for obscenity with that no, t-shirt.
1: you're kidding
3: me uh, Yeah and uh, it was a great promotion it was like <laughs> it was like <laughs> added to my promotion for the t-shirt you know in complaining about it and and, we, and they had a a matron from a hospital who seemingly was obsessed uh, and outraged by seeing it in a shop window uh, my uh, barrister whose name was Gordon Bennett <laughs> 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 he he uh, unfortunately had to kind of uh, undo her uh, outrage. Uh, and she they were laughed out of court one way or the other. Anyway, that, you know, that, it added a million sales to the actual T-shirt. So I was quite pleased, really. So. What an anyway, absolutely I cracking do, anecdote I, to
1: I, kick
3: I, off I the di- podcast. Yes, you Don't
0: digress at all. You kick <laughs> us off beautifully. Back to Jeff. It's almost impossible to believe it's 50 years since Aladdin same was released. You created the exhibition with Chris Duffy, who's the son of Brian Duffy, a.k.a. Duffy, who is one of the top three kind of 60s and 70s photographers, along with uh, obviously David Bailey and Terence Donovan. Uh, and of course, he collaborated with Bowie to take the lightning flash portrait and that portrait is ubiquitous so well known it's sometimes called the Mona Lisa of pop and apparently also Duffy came up it was originally the album was going to be called A Lad Insane and
2: Duffy said no call it A Lad Insane. Anyway tell us about the exhibition Jeff. Well um, yes it's 50 years unbelievably and I think what we wanted to do in the exhibition was to just focus in particularly on that cover image because uh, Camille Paglia the critic has said it's become one of the most emblematic and influential art images of the past half century. And what we wanted to do was try and show how that image came about and its subsequent influence. So the exhibition is about the, the music on the album as well. It's playing so you can hear it all again. Um, and it coincides with a new book called Latin Sane at 50, which explores uh, all the tracks on the album. But the exhibition particularly focuses on that one image. And I think the thing that uh, we wanted to try and get over was that in the early 70s, one forgets now, there was no internet, there was no mobile phones. um, How marvellous. um, (laughs) 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 Access to imagery was incredibly limited. And in fact, um, in 1973, when the album came out, Only 45% of houses in Britain even had a phone. I don't know what yours was like, but the one in our house was used for birth, deaths and marriages. So it was a world completely different in terms of representation. And uh, particularly from the late 60s, album covers, which of course are sort of forgotten art form now, were hugely important in disseminating ideas there were great album covers in the fifties with jazz companies like Blue Note, but I think it really got going, obviously, with the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper, designed by Peter Blake and uh, Jan Howarth, uh, who's got a new show on in London. If you're going through uh, Mayfair, and suddenly all the big bands, Rolling Stones, uh, yes, all these bands wanted to employ uh, artists to create uh, uh, covers to 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 visually represent the music on the album or the concept or all the rest of it. But of course, what was really interesting about Bowie was that Bowie was a supreme self promoter. So if you look at the album covers, they kind of track his uh, his life story. And prior to Aladdin Sane with Hunky Dory and uh, The Man Who Sold the World and Ziggy Stardust*,ly he created these more and more uh, theatrical presentations. Um, but on the day when he turned up in Duffy's studio, The interesting thing is that he turned up with no props, uh, but David turned up with one thing, his body, uh, and he came up with this extraordinary image. Duffy shot a couple of rolls of two and a quarter square uh, on his Hasselblad, but the interesting thing is, almost all of them are are sideways views. There's only a couple of uh, front-on images, and there's only a couple uh, with his eyes closed, which of course is the extraordinary thing about the image, um, which... Is a complete break with the whole tradition of western portraiture which obviously the eyes are you know the windows into one's soul that's what gives this image it's extraordinary mystery you have no idea what he's thinking that's why i think it's often as you say called the mona lisa of pop and famously the same thing was done by chris levine and his uh, extraordinary image of um, the late queen and of course the makeup artist pierre Roche, he was a, a superb makeup artist and you can see that when you see all the images that despite the fact that Bowie is sort of uh, moving his face around, the, the, the zigzag uh, stays perfect in every image. But the story um, as told by, by Chris and told, told by Duffy is that they were always gonna do something on the face, but it was Duffy that basically scrawled this giant um, zigzag across the face and then told uh, Pierre to sort of fill, it, uh, fill the whole thing in.
1: Given we're talking about album covers, let's come to you now, Dave, because you, of course, completely reinvented Bob Marley with Legend when I was working for you and uh, famously got the art director to paint some socks on him. I mean,
3: I was a fan of Bob Marley, like a lot of other people. But he was, when I had looked into the record sales, uh, they were much lower than I had anticipated. So he was more a cult artist. And I was fairly astonished to find that Exodus, which is his biggest record had sold in the UK something like 190,000. I had just uh, promoted Madness, and they had sold 800,000. And it sounded ridiculous that Madness, 800,000, and Bob Marley, 190,000. In those days, a very small amount. Nowadays, of course, it would be, you know, the end of the world, number one forever. I had the vision that essentially the general public, i.e. the white public, were suspicious of Bob Marley because the pictures of which you saw he was always dressed up in camouflage uh, clothing and he and he didn't smile. The reason turned out to be that Chris Blackwell, who was his producer and um, his you know uh, helper generally, would uh, would dump pictures of smiling. Bob and Chris liked to see him serious. They thought that this was. Uh, the image that the general public would would like to see. and so, as it occurred to me that he hadn't really sold through, he was selling to West Indian people generally, but he wasn't selling to the vast uh, unwashed. and so <laughs> so also I looked for it took it took a lot, very long time to find a picture of him looking. Interesting. Looking like a songwriter, looking like somebody who is looking into the future and and composing something to go with it. So we softened up the uh, his image, a picture of him wearing a highly Selassie ring, which was fairly unique as well, and. Uh, And the general public liked that picture of him. The legend came really from a bit of research with people who would automatically say legend when dealing with Bob. So it was easy to think what the title was. And um, Bruno Tilly, the art director at uh, Ireland, you know, was very helpful, joined in generally with the idea of it. And... uh, so we have a legendary item. It sold somewhere close to 40 million now.
1: Wow. And, wow. Well, <laughs> and also... it's, a
3: bit, it's a bit bigger than Exodus at 190,000. <laughs>
1: but, but Dave, also, I mean, at the time, you, you, know, you were pioneering pop videos, which is what I was doing there. And um, it, it, you, know, you, you really broke the mold. I mean, the Madness ones are legendary. The Tracy Ullman ones were legendary. And the, and the Bob Marley ones were great because we did them with uh, Don Lett, who, of course, went on to be in Big Audio Dynamite and so on.
0: And Dave, I understand that you also managed Jimi
3: Hendrix. I was, uh, I was his tour manager. Tour managing Jimi Hendrix was a very interesting thing because there was no criteria. It was mainly in America. So there's no real criteria at that time. I think the Beatles, Herman's Hermits, the Animals and Them had been to America and toured. Uh, No other English band had had got there at that stage that Jimmy went back from the UK into America. And so there was no... Security there was no there was no, you were making it up as you went along, and a lot of that was fairly you know random there was a, you know guns, money, and drugs and rock and roll all over the place. <laughs> I was really doing jimmy's equipment at the time, but the tour manager, an English gentleman from Folkestone called Jerry Stickles, had a some kind of gallbladder situation and had to go back to England for a procedure and so I was given a briefcase and a beretta so <laughs> So I was James Bond and um and I got a license to carry it concealed which is uh, at that time was was you know moderately difficult anyway I never got a chance to use it you had to have a gun for insurance purposes because you were collecting large sums of money and there was a lot of incident. I mean, we could be here for a day and a half. Tour Managing Jimmy was very interesting, and it was a one-off. I'd come from Ireland. I didn't have any real experience of tour managing. Uh, talking to a lot of Americans about their remarkable racist attitudes was something that I learned quickly to sh- to shut up about because I was... Uh, very upset about the promoters and their outcome they didn't seem to realize that jimmy was jimmy was black (laughs) (laughs) they didn't they didn't seem to notice that because the audience were essentially white and were enforced white uh they didn't allow they told me it was a good clean show they were running and they (laughs) did not allow uh nebulous people to attend so i had to you know, learn. And and uh, as Charlotte knows, and um, I, I find it moderately difficult to keep my mouth shut. As long as <laughs> <can>. So, <laughs> so uh, yes, Jimi Hendrix, Al, talking about the album covers, moving into that kind of area, I've always been against the idea of superstars. My definition of a star is somebody that nobody tells the truth to. And so... <laughs> Uh, I I avoid using the words around the artists that I have had.
0: But surely it's part of the artist's kind of whole thing, shtick, is to uh, be a sort of flamboyant. I mean, I've just, uh, I suppose it's in my mind because I went last night to the Elton John Yellow Brick Road tour. And, uh, you know, there you've got a guy who's obviously an incredibly talented musician. Uh, and his music can speak for itself but he loved the costumes and he created this persona a bit le- a bit like David Bowie. there are some unbelievably iconic photographs. one of him at the baseball stadium is at Shea Stadium with the silver glitter baseball, Uh, outfit. I mean, they're just incredible.
3: If people wanted to look like that, that's entirely their selection. It shouldn't be an essential part that you cannot get to the heights of music appreciation unless you look like a raging idiot. I mean, it shouldn't be be the situation. The man's talent must be in his uh, innermost emotional songwriting ability. Um, I think uh, Elton John is very funny and is very t- uh, tongue-in-cheek about the whole thing. I, I-, I like his approach. He's very straightforward. I almost managed him at one point, and so um, I did study him quite closely when he was Reg Dwight. But, you know, uh, I mean, I... I but Right uh, at the
0: beginning, right at the beginning of his career, yeah, you could have been his yeah. manager.
3: Well, I, I did... Uh, sign up uh, Declan McManus who is Elvis Costello and, and I I did encourage him to change his name because we weren't getting anywhere with Declan McManus although is he that had, right? yeah so the same album that Declan McManus did really started to sell when we had Elvis Costello promoted so it's, quite,
0: scene- it's quite interesting I, uh, I I can still remember age 10 going into a record store. Can you
1: stop showing off about how young you are? And asking, <laughs> asking to li-
0: again with my brother, the famous stiff T-shirt brother, asking to listen to Elvis Costello's album, My Aim is True. And weirdly, the reason it sticks in my mind, the reason we wanted to listen was because we thought he looked like a complete dork and we were fascinated and we were completely obviously captured the minute we put the record on. And it was in the days, just to show you how old I am, It was in the days when you went into a record store, you asked for the record and you went into a booth and you put it on a turntable and you put on some headphones to listen to it.
3: Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's a very good idea. At the end of the day, the public have to like it to buy it. Uh, So your job is to put it in front of the public in a reasonable fashion for them to consider it. And to do that, stiff my label where we we would do anything. I had Elvis arrested by the police in West End Central and used an Irish accent to uh, encourage them to arrest him. The music comes first, and then you have to see what it is that will intrigue people. Uh, David Bowie was exactly the same. He was doing exactly the same thing in intriguing people to to visit his music and he changed his uh, musical image so regularly. It was unusual in those days because record companies liked you to stick. Once they once they had a hit in a rock vein, they didn't like you moving around too much. They felt the public might have to be resold and they would have to spend more money. Just going back
2: to album covers for a minute, there are covers which sort of transcend just the moment, the artist, the financial ambitions of the record company um, and our great art and I think and I think of those uh, Bowie's Earthling album from um, 1997 when he's standing uh, with his back uh, to the viewer in the Alexander McQueen um, Union Jack outfit looking out uh, in like an 18th century gentleman over the English landscape is a quite extraordinary image, which is as good as um, you know, um, a landscape painting from the eighteenth century. Which is it's clearly a, a kind of almost a, paro- a parody of. Um, just to say, for any any listeners who are uh, art collectors, it's, um, it's it's interesting that an extraordinary amount of the original artwork for these covers has simply disappeared. Um, and no one knows where it is. Just to, um, the, the V&A have got a few of the figures from um, Sergeant Pepper, and some of the others survive. Uh, but a lot of these things just went in in a skip. But then
0: Bowie kept everything, didn't he?
2: Um, in the archive in New York, which um, as you probably know is is um, is coming to the V&A uh, in the next year or so. Uh, there are an enormous number of um of um probably thirty or forty thousand photographs of Bowie, so he was uh very adept at keeping a record of 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 himself and creating this uh image but the extraordinary thing about most of the early records is is that those negatives have have, have disappeared over years been lost or whatever um and that's so true of um of of, of a lot of material with, with 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 bands you know the manager runs off, go bankrupt, they split up. Um, so it's always interesting, as with um, uh, Brian Duffy, that he actually uh, kept these negatives, and they survived the uh, the bonfire when he destroyed most of his work.
1: What well, I think so extraordinary about what you're both saying is, is how the music of that time of the sort of late 70s, early is still so loved today. I mean, there's just such an appetite to hear all about it. Here's you with your exhibition, Jeff, And Dave, you know, you're doing a whole tour just chatting about those times.
3: Well, I can say, uh, I mean, there are um, obviously a, a demographic uh, that are still above ground, so to speak, uh, who are listening, you know, but there are <laughs> wheelchairs and... <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And various other things are to get the audience into the uh, venues. Yes, uh, I I do think that music had a lot to do. And we are losing, you know, gradually an awful lot of people who have had a big effect on our lives, our kids' lives, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, talking about the the, uh, album cover area leads me very briefly to touch on... I was uh, brought up in a Catholic uh, boarding school... And uh, the nuns were were very much a part of uh, my <laughs> my teachers, etc. And I remember some of the ladies very fondly. I don't remember any of them wearing makeup, and I remember their faces really well and their personalities. I've never understood uh, women's makeup, for example. Uh, you know, it it it's a kind of a geisha. It's a kind of a caricature, and and. As humans, we seem to be involved in the caricature. The fact that music, which is my kind of area, uh, has bizarre album covers and photographs is is another area of, uh, to my mind, a really unusual situation. I, I don't understand why we have to exaggerate in order to bring things forward. I I, find, I Stiff Records found that the English language was enough. A couple of crucial ads that had a lot of effect on uh, Ian Dury's new Boots and Panties album. I would bring to your attention, uh, Ed, at the moment. Um, one was Give Us Smoking and Give Us Your Money, which was <laughs> very popular. And the other was Don't Fart Before Your Arse Is Ready. And that one, that one caused a very big spike in the sales of the record.
0: If you've got a don't fart until your ass is ready T-shirt lying around, I'll wear it in the House of the
3: Lords for you. I have, um, <laughs> I, I have some, whether I have a kind of to hand, but I have a T-shirt maker and I can do any slogan you would like in any kind of colour.
1: But also, Dave, you were a... Genius, at, you know, for, for for what you're saying, keeping the music simple. You were the one who came up with all these incredibly inventive, witty pop videos and built a whole cult. I suppose, well, look at my Dave, the madness videos. you're a cultural videos.
3: icon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's nice, it's very very kind of you uh, to, to say that. I don't feel like a cultural icon at any time. I wouldn't know how to get in and out of bed if I thought I was a cultural icon.
2: <laughs> can I, also, if I can just, just add, when you're um, promoting culture in the, in the upper house, it's perhaps worth pointing out that um, whether you're in Los Angeles or London or Goa and you have a load of people going past you, there's three T-shirts that you'll see eventually um, there's John Pash's tongue and lips logo from the Rolling Stones. Um there's Hypnosis Dark Side of the Moon, which came out a month before in Sane and in Sane And all three artworks were done in London uh in a thirty-six month period. And um I think it's you know, it's really crucial to remember that the, you know, part of all this was that there was the infrastructure and the space for artists, photographers. Uh, uh, and all the rest of it uh, to work in London and one of the great problems of course is nowadays um, all these spaces are are, are slowly being eroded away and in fact the studio where Duffy worked uh, if you go and stand outside it now uh, it's got a um, a block of what appears to be a 19th century house on on the site which is actually a copy of the building next door which was put on it when uh, Duffy's studio was pulled down and so many of these spaces particularly in, in London but also in places like Berlin and, and other big cities uh, are just eroding, and I think um, that's why we're all it,
0: moving to Folkestone.
2: Exactly, <laughs> um, and uh, so um, I, I hope you'll 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 promote um, creating keeping the infrastructure for yes, the music. Yes,
0: well, <clears throat> the deputy mayor of culture, Justine Simons, is very on this and is promoting artist studio as a way of. Um, it is interesting how these things are developing. I mean, there are tech companies that are springing up that provide you with kind of one man band music studios that you can rent by the hour and stuff. so to a certain extent the market is is meeting this requirement but it, I, I'm more interested in the point about the album as an uh, as a cultural facet because obviously as a politician we talk about cultural diplomacy a lot and I think Jeff your point about those three t-shirts is so powerful yeah yeah in terms of dare I say it sounding like a politician which I am uh, a great kind of British cultural export that goes around the world it's yeah. really phenomenal
2: and the irony of it all was that uh, the um, Design Awards, the album cover Design Awards um, uh, in 1973, um, Aladdin Sane was number two because Dark Side of the Moon uh, got first placed.
3: I love uh, Jeffries. I really appreciate your uh, your opinion and attitude to to David Bowie's stuff. I, I, I had a different one. I was kind of, Stiff Records was opposing this kind of area of endeavor, and so uh it was you know but I used to be a photographer, and so I was very appreciative of photographic skills without kind of the makeup so a lot of our artists were not oil paintings, they may have changed their names, but the music was great, and that that was the essence of the of the angle that we had we thought let's say uh, do you
0: do you have a stiff archive?
3: Uh, no, I did have, but at a certain point in my life, 10 of everything that Stiff did wa- went into an archive. Uh, but at, at, the, um, at the chosen period, when I chose to take it out, uh, there was an empty cage in a large warehouse. Well, somebody's
0: taken the archive?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. My mother gave away my photographic archive. I had a lot of negatives in two tea chests in the garage of my what, home. Of all, all your w- stars? Yeah, so all the stuff this I, did, I did. is a tragedy. I did Beatles photographs. I did the Rolling Stones uh, pictures. I did a lot of stuff, uh, kind of photojournalistic work in How my early. How old are you, Dave? Me? Yeah. I mean, I'm you've eight, been around since. The... I'm 18 now. You don't look it. I feel exactly that age. So, is this um, incredible
0: pop star healthy lifestyle you've led, or something?
3: Well, a blameless life. Yes, I do. <laughs> oh. I do feel instilled a, by the
0: Catholic yeah, nuns. Yes, yeah, exactly. But are you seriously saying, Dave, that your archive was stolen?
3: My archive was stolen. yes. it's
2: unbelievable. It's I, have, I have to say, as a as a as a as a museum curator. I do um, ask all the listeners to um, to look under their beds because it is just extraordinary what's lying around. Um, a few years ago, the 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 late Tony Elliott, uh, who founded Time Out, came to see me, and he said, "I've got this huge photo archive up in North London. You know, it's all the stuff from Time Out, not just Time Out London, but all the other cities." And I said, "You really know, so we're talking about it." And he said, um, "I'll um, I'll come back to you, you know, and uh, I'll kind of check it out and all the rest of it." Um, and um, in the meantime, there was a fire, and a whole lot went up in smoke.
1: No. Oh. oh, God! It is yep. awful what's been lost.
3: That Ooh. is yeah. terrible, isn't it? Really, really terrible. Yeah.
1: Anyway, the good thing is, is we've had you both on remembering it all, so that's very exciting. So, um, Jeff, just tell us how long the exhibition runs for. Um, the show's on till uh,
2: uh the end of may and on the weekend of the 22nd 23rd that's the london marathon um there's a whole series of events uh music by people uh influenced by Aladdin, same poetry readings all sorts of things that's on the south bank website um i'll be do- doing a talk about immersive exhibitions if anybody's interested um and uh, Christoph is do- doing a talk as well so um uh if you're coming into london uh to support your loved one running on the sunday um, and you're in London on Saturday, um, do come along to the South Bank Centre. I should say, I'm, um, my understanding is at the moment, the exhibition is sold out daily because it's not a huge exhibition. So if you definitely want to get in there, I'd
3: book a ticket.
1: And and Dave, your your show, your tour, how, how long is that running for? It's running uh,
3: for two months, uh, April and May, uh, Not uh, mainly in the early part of the week. It's not really a weekend show as such. And we're going, you know, around the country and up to Scotland. I mean, next week we're in Truro, Exeter, Bristol uh, for three exciting days.
1: Thank you both so much. That was absolutely really, really great chat. Thank you.
3: All the best. Thanks, guys. Take care, Dave.
0: See you soon. Next week, we're going to be talking about craft in the Build Up to London Craft Week. We're going to be talking to Guy Salter, about the highlights of the week, and to Thomas Storzewski, who started life designing exquisite dresses and gowns for movie stars and royalty, but now, with Mac Contemporary, has curated the installation of Victoria Lady de Rothschild's collection at Ascot House. That's going to be on until September, and it's a tribute to her love of craft.
1: We're also going to be talking to Nasi Vaseg, who's been 30 years in the art business at Sotheby's. She's run Masterpiece and she now heads up her art advisory company, Business of Art. She's going to be on talking to us about her boutique art platform, Eye of the Collector, because the third edition of its fair is coming up between the 17th and 20th of May at Two Temple Place in London. And it's going to be stuffed full of beautiful things, including 60 new works. As usual, you can find us at Country and Townhouse.com where you'll also find the latest edition of the magazine as well as be able to listen to our sister podcast house guest with carol annette talking to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design we love your feedback and we'd also like to hear if there's anything you'd like to hear us profiling or changing so please send me a comment or email us on charlotte at co. Thank you very much indeed for listening and see you next week. Goodbye.